0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is the uh, first VRT of 2022 titled PPLI versus Family Offices. I'm Zach Lucas, partner with uh, Spencer West, and I'll be the one that's uh, sort of running through this with our, with our panelists today. Now, for today's session, um, I'm very grateful to be joined by Wong Lee, who's Managing Director and Head of Family Services at Lombard Odier, uh, based in Singapore. Also very happy to be joined by Roger Chi and Yannick Hani, both of 1291 respectively. Um, One based, Yannick, in Hong Kong and Roger, uh, nominally based in Singapore. And then finally, we've got Michael Velton, tax partner with Deloitte, again, based in Singapore. So going on to uh, today's session, I'll run through the basic introduction on the, the topic of comparing these two solutions. And then we'll go on to uh, run through the comparative assessment, uh, looking at it from a client's perspective. We'll then end the session with uh, looking at the combination structures. So looking at a PPLI in combination with a family office and likewise family office in combination with a PPLI. Some of this is a bit counterintuitive. But when we do the analysis, you'll see that actually it reveals some quite interesting variations for clients. And finally, if we have any time at the end, you know, we'll do question and answers. Um, generally, it'll take about an hour, uh, maybe a little bit longer for us to work our way through this. Um, the, the same admonitions as before, when we, we did the VRTs uh, previously, these are it's not designed as legal advice, uh, certainly not designed as a sort of training platform. This is the bunch of practitioners having a chat around topical you know, issues and giving their, their fair advice so it may you know we, we don't make any assertion that it's error free um, we would hope obviously to be completely accurate in what we're we're talking about at all times okay so the introduction on the comparative assessment now we're trying to adopt an approach where we're looking very client-centric so the the issues that we're going to raise are quite practical so we're not going to be looking at the the technical manifestations of both of these solutions. So we're working on the basis that um, some of the viewers, some of the, the, the people that have joined us today are gonna to be involved in client meetings where these issues will come up. Cost, consolidation, control, privacy, migration, asset protection, reversibility, and succession. So it's very very grounded in the practical side of advising clients. And I think that's where we'll do the mo- most of the comparisons uh, today. We'll end it with a summary of which we feel is um is the, the sort of better solution i don't think that necessarily that's going to be an accurate or a, a truthful one um because whereas, as the, the the sort of panel will go through it's there are different variations depending on the type of clients that we're dealing with so there's a market difference between let's say an extended family from indonesia with multi-branches multi-generation as against the north asian chinese family that's a nuclear family with husband wife and, and a child so I think the the, the, the product fit will, will move around a little bit. So it's not definitive, but we're trying to do a baseline for this so that uh, we can have you know sort of other discussions around how to remedy some of the uh, deficiencies that we'll pick up during the analysis. So again, uh, quite pictorial. So we'll we'll do diagrams for this. Uh, this will be the representation of a classical PPLI policy. You've got the policyholder on top, life assured on the side. You've got the beneficiaries of the policy and then we're assuming in each case that we've got an investment um, uh, company that's been inserted into the policy that holds financial accounts now likewise we're going to adopt the the classical singapore single family office structure as an illustration so you'll have a holding company and then you'll have underlying um, affiliate companies management and a fund company and then underneath the fund company we will have the financial accounts the investment accounts so these will be the two side by side uh, ppli and the family office as we run through the analysis part so to start off we'll look at the the cost aspect and this is obviously working through as if we were discussing with a client um, what are the cost advantages to each Um, we'll look at the setup costs Uh, we'll also look at The tax and regulatory costs and then finally end out on what are the ongoing costs now I think i'll I'll probably kick off with yannick on this to talk through from a a ppli policy perspective. Are there going to be any effective minimums when we talk about the the setup cost to access a ppli policy and that could be from a practical standpoint, as well as from a, uh, a legal standpoint
1: yeah and uh, thanks a lot sec and i'm happy to give some inputs on the cost side here with the ppli obviously the ppli cost is very simply set up typically there is a setup cost and there is an ongoing cost uh, or kind of an administration cost plus there, are depending on how much death benefit is insured within the policy there would also be mortality costs uh, but this is kind of a separate topic which is obviously very uh, based on your age your health status and how much uh, death benefit is insured but just for the structure itself um the setup and the ongoing cost typically they're in a percentage of the premium paid in and then the ongoing of the net asset value so you ask okay from wh- from what amount does it make sense to be honest it depends very much on the jurisdiction where you're coming from and why you need it if you do a tax versus or tax benefit versus cost analysis then obviously it's very different if you do that in the us where you potentially have high tax, especially if you're in a state which has also state tax like california obviously your marginal income tax rate can go up to maybe 50% or even over 50%. So it's a very different view on if you pay now 50, 60, 70 basis points, maybe for the solution compared to may- maybe the tax benefit that you're doing. In other jurisdictions jurisdiction where you maybe have lower taxation, um, it yeah maybe makes less sense. And therefore, we don't usually say, oh, there is a minimum typically say from private banking uh uh, minimums it makes obviously sense to look at it but then it really depends from client to client to jurisdiction to jurisdiction whether it makes sense or not.
0: Mm. roger just from your perspective what what do we see as the minimums coming through in terms of the the setup um, the minimum investments is it does it make sense for a client to engage on a ppli that's a less than five million or what what do we see at at the sort of minimum levels
2: yeah, Zach, exactly. that's a very good question. So typically we do see it starting about the 5 million mark, but we have done policies that are smaller. We have done policies as, as small as 2 and 3 million. So, and as, as Yannick said, it just depends on the jurisdiction, depends on the different cost savings. And sometimes, you know, for um, even these smaller policies, even though there may be a, a higher in terms of percentage setup cost, costs, it does make sense, right? It does make financial sense. Right, right.
0: Okay, I think, Michael, from your perspective, looking at the, the tax side of this, um, and uh, we, we uh, one of the central themes through this is that we'll try and do a broad comparison between, let's say, an Indonesian um, based client tax resident to uh, tax resident in, in mainland China. Obviously, PPLIs are typically um, promoted as a, a tax deferral mechanism or a way in which you can avoid having the um, the income tax effect. From that perspective, what, what do we actually see from from the well, Indonesia well, side of well. law? And then from the China side going forward, uh, do we still have that tax deferral aspect to the PPLI? Yeah, I mean, from a Indonesian perspective, <coughs> um,
3: insurance policies are not viewed to be an investment in a controlled foreign corporation or CFC. Um, so you then would have deferral until um, there's a partial Redemption or full redemption. Um, the and that sort of position. I mean, the, there had been you know, an exemption irrespective going up to a, a year or two ago, but you know, more recent tax law changes have removed that. So that if there is a redemption, partial redemption, that would be that would be taxed. But but yes, to Ferrell at that point. Um, for, for other jurisdictions, it's really the same sort of question, right? I mean, how's the policy viewed? Are there accrual accruals rules? Um, mm-hmm. Can it be caught by a CFC? Can the policy be caught by a CFC rule? Um, But also more fundamental, you know, does it actually fall within the tax base? You know, in some jurisdictions, you know, they they define the sort of personal income, investment income that might be subject to tax. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you would expect, um, you know, and and there is some uncertainty. You you mentioned China. There's a little bit of uncertainty potentially. But, you know, you would expect, um, you know, taxation when there is a realization typically for most jurisdictions.
0: Right. So you're still getting a tax deferral on that. Yeah. If we look at the family office and flip it over. Um, there are some discussions around and I, I don't know if this is uh, this is going to be the case with the with the upcoming budget, but there are some discussions around the the minimum amounts investable um, going up for a uh, Singapore single family office. Obviously, we have the 13 x or what used to be the 13 x at the uh, 50 million mark going in. But what, what's your your take on that as part of the, the sort of mutterings around the setup costs on family offices? Well, I mean, just kind of
3: picking up on the the CFC point first. I mm. mean, to the extent that you know the owners are still residents, you know, in, in the home country, and their CFC rules. I mean, you, you are invested in a company, and, and your yeah. diagrams, the holding company. If you took out the holding company, you'd still be invested in a in a company, right? So, so to the extent that a jurisdiction has CFC rules, you know usually fair to assume that it's going to be sort of caught and um and indonesia obviously (coughs) pardon me um yeah has cfc rules so you know you would expect you know you would expect it to be caught to the extent that you've got indonesian residents owning that and bearing in mind what cfc rules really are i mean they're essentially anti-deferral rules so rather than being able to accumulate income in the fund entity in your example Mm. Uh, and only be paying tax when there's a distribution, when there's a dividend, you're, you're taxing it on an annual basis on periodic yeah. basis. So CFC rules are important. I mean, you mentioned China as well. I mean, just as a point of contrast, China uh, 2020 um, did introduce um, changes to the personal income tax, including CFC rules. They don't seem to yet have been implemented, but that's certainly something to watch. Um, other jurisdictions are going down that same path in terms of um, um, implementing CFC rules. Taiwan, I think, is perhaps the... the, the the next, or the, you know, the next cab off the rank, if you like, in terms mm-hmm. of you know, expected effective date in 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you're right, in terms of you know, to the extent that this is a Singapore structure, from a tax perspective, at least you know, ignoring the home country considerations, if 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 the family's still resident there, you know, Singapore you know relies on being able to qualify for one of the resident fund exemption schemes, you know, 13R, 13X, albeit that they've been renumbered, but let's kind of keep with 39, 30 next, because I still remember those. Um, um, 30, 30 next, obviously, you need to have investment of $50 million to qualify for that. You know, yeah. 30 now, there hasn't been a minimum sort of to date.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, albeit that, you know, to the extent that, you know, with the management company, the family office, I think you've kind of described it as a corporate fund manager, you know, to the extent that you're looking to, to secure employment passes through that vehicle, yeah. you know, you would expect to have a, a level you know a reasonable level of assets that are going to be managed in order to sort of support that employment pass.
0: yeah i mean do you, do you think that we're likely to see changes to what was the 13 hour requirement for minimum investable amounts making maybe 20 million something like that
3: uh i to be honest i think we just need to to to, to wait till next month and see yeah. um i mean clearly you know there's a whole bunch of policy issues that you know are under consideration i think all of us have read the reports around sort of you know wealth taxes and yeah, and within that not not just the wealth taxes understood but you know how do you look to sort of raise further revenue from sort of you know wealthier families you know yeah, yeah. Um, you know, be that property taxes etc so you know, you could see that that would be part of you know that, that would be one aspect of yeah, yeah. of those sort of measures but i think i think we just need to wait to the to the budget you know, next
0: month i think just that neatly goes into the the regulatory aspects of this um certainly from, and Yannick and Roger, you can jump in on this, from a PPLI policy perspective, we don't seem to have uh, um, a, a sort of regulatory imposed minimum um, of cost involved with the PPLI. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I mean, there, there's no regulatory minimums. Um, I think it's up to the carriers and you know, it just depends on the minimum amounts that, that they invest in. Um, but you know, I think in general, the PPLI structures, they're very cost efficient. It's always under 1%. Um, and they're very effective structures, and I think that's, they're very good value because of that.
0: Yeah. And just flipping back to Michael, just on coming back to this minimum spend on the single family office, mm. um, that is a regulatory a regulatory requirement if you're going to maintain your your status. So that's typically at two hundred thousand uh, per year. Um, do we do we expect any changes to that?
3: No, I, mean, I don't think. I don't anticipate changes to that. And you're right. I mean, the condition for, you know, is that you have to have 200,000 minimum spend. Um, But I don't expect a change for that. I mean, one one point that sort of can get overlooked a little bit with that is that there is a focus on the minimum spend. Um, But when you look at the conditions, um, you know, to 13R, for instance, you know, there is a requirement that um, related party transactions be on an arm's length basis. So in a lot of cases, you you would have a fee that kind of covers the salary of the employees, the family members, um, and at least a minimum of $200,000. I mean, strictly speaking, you really need to look at the activities that are performed by the fund manager from a transfer pricing lens and, and sort of determine applying those principles you know, what an arm's length fee would be. But in terms of cost, you're right. I mean, you know, that fee, whatever that fee comes in, the $200,000 or more, whatever that might be, less the salaries, less the other expenses, you know, would then be subject to Singapore corporate tax at the 17% tax rate. Right.
0: right. OK, I think just um, switching over to to Wong Lee, looking at this whole discussion around costs, and, you know, when we we sit down with clients and go through it, what do you feel is the um, some of the, the the lessons learned for particularly for some of the wealth planners that may be watching and some of the you know maybe they're they're quite junior um, they're they're just finding their way what are the main things that we we see coming up that may be missed in all of this discussion and um, when, when you're you're rushing because I my personal view is it seems to be quite an over, over obsessive discussion around 13x 13r and if you're dealing with the family office to the exception of everything else. But what, what sort of advice would you give from a practical standpoint for the, you know, for the folks watching?
4: Okay. So I, I think for me, um, these two, uh, for want of a better description, solutions, um, PPLI oh. and family office, they are great solutions in their own right. But for me, I think it's important. We've mentioned earlier about client intentions and objectives to clearly understand what the client is trying to do and the match the to right tool with the um intended objective of the client. Um, If you look at PPLI, as um, Yannick has mentioned earlier, and Michael has explained in detail uh, regarding the tax piece, personally from experience, I find that um, PPLI is a very good solution when there is a tax driver. When the client is in a situation where tax deferral is important, there are some tax planning aspects around, um, you know, the solution that we're looking for. Then mm. PPLI is a good consideration. Uh, the family office, on the other hand, um, in its true form, is meant to be. Um, an office that helps to manage, consolidate assets for the family in the longer run, transgenerational planning to some extent. Mm-hmm. So the, the the purpose why we use a family office very often is quite different from the driver for the PPLI. And now that when we look at the two solutions together, um, from a cost perspective, as you say, if we look at the setup, um, mm-hmm. we have the 13R and we have the 13X. So 13R has no minimum. So um, let's say if you have a client who's looking at putting 10 million into something and then you have a wealth planner who has these two very popular solutions that everybody's talking about. Um, Personally, if they rushed into a family office with the 10 million just because 13 hour has no minimum, I would struggle a little bit with it because I I think the, the wealth planner needs to think through and discuss with the client to say, what is your main driver? Is it immigration? Do you have longer-term plans to build a proper family office? Because when you look at the setup cost for the family office, you have to employ um, an advisor like Michael. So, you know, depending on whether we're using Deloitte, PwC, BDO, or whoever, the, the range could be anything from 20000 30000 to a six-figure advisory fee. And then you have the um, incorporation cost for the vehicles you're going to use. So it's, it's not necessarily cheap depending on how you put it together that's being one so if they're only looking at getting an employment pass and they have no real long-term plan um, you know I think as a world planner as a proper advisor you do need to drill it down with the clients a little bit on the other hand if you have a client actually with sort of a good to have to an employment pass and then there is a, a tax angle to it when you look at the amount, so we're talking about 13R. If it's again 10 million, then the setup cost for the PPLI, as as um, Rogers mentioned just now, is usually below 1%. Arguably, if let's say we manage to bargain with 1291 for a 0.5% fee, maybe your setup cost may be level to the setup cost for the family office, but your ongoing cost with the 200,000 business spend the family office will be more expensive.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting you, you one. You get what I'm saying? So if yeah, you start yeah. to
4: look at the scenario, if you're looking uh, at 200 million family office, yeah, then your PPLI cost from a setup perspective is not necessarily cheaper than you have to do a massive yeah. bargaining to bring it to a level which is sensible. So I, I think, you know, we have the experts here who is going to advise us in relation to the technical pieces as the sort of as the gatekeeper to some extent where you're bringing solutions and you're bringing experts to the table then as the well planner it is your job then to have a proper conversation with the client to map the scenario properly to make sure that you have a sensible comparison with what makes sense.
0: Yeah I think that's a good point. I think what's come through is that the cost on the the family office at least is fairly static but the cost from a ppli perspective is going to be on a percentage AUM basis so that but but having
4: said that i'm going to bring hmm. back to yannick's point in relation yeah. to because he did a, do a good comparison in relation to the cost of the solution versus the tax that you save so yeah. if the driver is a tax saving um driver then that comparison will make total sense. So even if it's way off the charts more expensive than the family office solution, it will still be a sensible solution because of the tax that you save. So I think that discussion really needs to be a multifaceted one.
0: Yeah. So in your experience, mm-hmm.
3: just, just so one quick point on that. I mean 16, sure. I mean the driver is residency, you know, in, in Singapore. Um you're then resident in Singapore you're no longer resident in Indonesia so the CFC rules don't apply you're no longer mm-hmm. resident in China or Taiwan or wherever so that kind of point of, you know, that comparison changes if you yeah. know, establishing the structure is going to lead to tax residency in Singapore for instance and just Singapore
0: I mean, just as a practical point how how many advisors do we do we see actually running those computations I know it's quite rare I would have thought to have both of them lined up both solutions at the same time but even looking at that cost analysis, looking at the tax saving, looking at, you know, going through the, the, the ongoing cost per year and what it looks like in terms of fluctuations. Is that something that is typical in the market that, that uh, sort of wealth planners are doing, or is it we're really looking at the tax deferral and, and actually the, the costs slightly buried away? I mean, what's, what's been the experience?
4: P- Personally, I don't see many planners putting these two together and properly analysing it. Um, yeah. I don't know about Yannick and, and you know Michael's side. Whether you have planners coming up to ask you questions of this nature,
0: Right. right. guys, anything on that practical practical manifestations of this type of analysis? Is it typical? Um, I mean, to the extent that
3: you're looking to achieve ob- obtain residency elsewhere of residency in singapore
0: yeah
3: you know, that piece is kind of a bit easier the harder piece is what does it mean to cease to be resident elsewhere and that can be kind of a more you know, yeah yeah. you know it's a, you know there's a, sort of the technical rules and then there's the practical requirements in yeah. order to, have to sort of break residency so you do see a fair bit of work going into that to the extent that you know you want to achieve just tax residency yeah. <clears throat> With the family
0: office. Yeah. Okay, I think the key takeaway from this one is the tax deferral aspect. I think that's the key bit that comes out from obviously the PPLI is achieving that, and that seems to be fairly robust. Uh, family office, as it stands and as it is, with a, just a, a shareholder, that would seem to be wide open in terms of the CFC coverage. Uh, certainly Indonesia would be there. Um, China, probably keep an eye out for what Michael's saying earlier. Right, we'll, we'll leave this bit um, uh, and move on. To consolidation, a little bit easier here, really looking at um, from a financial asset standpoint um, is there any restrictions on the type of financial assets that can go into each of these um, different solutions? And then looking at the family business aspect, and particularly if there's any restrictions on the type of family business that can be absorbed within each solution, because you know, clearly, from a Southeast Asian perspective, uh, most of the wealth is family business and it's obviously transitioning we're having family offices you know diversifying but that's still a work in progress we haven't got to a fifth generation um sort of uh, wealthy class at the moment so looking at the financial assets i think it's fair without much analysis that there isn't much to do uh, in terms of differences between the two solutions but looking particularly at the family businesses um yannick roger is there Typically from a, a sort of life company perspective, how do they feel about operating businesses? Can we actually get operating businesses in, in absorbed beyond 5%? So in other words, can we put the whole thing in there? And are they particularly trades that they're going to be very leery of, of, of taking on, you know, like burning down a forest or something or chopping down things or trying to pull you know oil out of the ground or anything that basically destroys our planet? So is it, what's been the experience on that?
2: I think the one of the reasons why why you know we have thirty carriers in fifteen jurisdictions is that um, oftentimes we can find a solution for the family man for the client. Um, right. but all carriers will take all types of businesses, but there may be one or two that may take that type of business. Um, so we can be very flexible, and I think that's where where advisors like us sort of add a lot of value because we have that really breadth and that that depth of in terms of the number of carriers and the scope that we can do. Um, I think something else to, to really keep in mind um, is that, you know, with you know that, yeah, in terms of the the only restriction I really do see is that in some countries there are foreign ownership restrictions. So in Thailand, for example, you can only own up to 49% of a onshore company. In Philippines, maybe 40%. Those are the only sort of restrictions, hard and fast restrictions that I really have to watch out for. Um, most of the times, you know, in those cases, I can just just it looks like a foreign insurance company is taking over that company. So I can only go up to that limit. But otherwise it will be
0: quite flexible okay and in terms of the way in which the life companies like the business to be held do they want to have an intermediate regulated fund you keep hearing about vccs being used to to sell out um some of the uh the, the the family businesses is there a working practice that they try and be standoffish in terms of the chain of ownership or how does that look from a practical standpoint it's a good
2: question I mean it can be more flexible than that so oftentimes all we need is a, is a hold co you now have an offshore hold code it could be a VCC, be some structure in between um, but oftentimes the uh, an offshore hold code is, is much more more much more efficient and, and much um, less costly to do so just the, the onshore operating company we put into an offshore hold Co take the shares the offshore hold code and print the PPLI. Um, and that
0: offshore hold code doesn't have to be in any way umbrellaed under some regulatory environment. It, no, it doesn't it could, seem to
2: be there. Yeah, it could be a, a pick from any jurisdiction. It could be a Singapore or Hong Kong. um, Even some of the British protectorates of BVI came in. Um,
0: okay. Yannick, Singapore. anything from you, Yannick, on this point, uh, enveloping businesses into a PPLI?
1: Yeah, I think maybe one point uh, which has so far been forgotten it, that, uh, is that for certain jurisdictions, it's not allowed to uh, wrap up businesses, uh, family-owned businesses. A good example, maybe, um, is the US, where you have control doctrine and diversification rules. So no chance at all to do that Um, because uh, you need to give up the control and everything. And that obviously doesn't work or otherwise uh, the policy would be tainted. So such things need to be taken into consideration because obviously the product itself is an open architecture. Uh, but what we really need to look at is the regulatory environment in the jurisdiction where the client is living, and certain jurisdictions would allow more flexibility on the underlying investments and others less. Yeah,
0: I mean, in terms of Indonesia, presumably a PMA structure would be fine. You could you could wrap that whichever way you want, um, as long as it's got the, the clearance to be held by a foreign ownership. Um, from a China perspective, have we got any experience with that?
1: So from a China perspective, typically, it doesn't look so far that it's really uh, regulated, uh, that you cannot hold it. However, you should always look that it's at arm's length. So uh, if obviously it then looks like that it's really kind of just a policy in between and it's not a real life insurance as it should be, uh, you could cause issues with that. In the end, it's all about substance, like with companies and other structures here, it's also about. substance. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, the, the life companies that actually allow this, um, are they mainstream? Or are these boutique? Just, I just want to get a feel for um, for where where you end up in the market. If you are wanting to envelope a, a family business in this way, does it, does it end up with a with a major life company? Or do you actually end up with a sort of special purpose kind of white label job?
2: I think you know, with, with it just depends on, on the current jurisdictions. So I think some of the European carriers tend to be a bit more flexible because they're used to these types of things, um, but it just depends on jurisdiction, depends on type of business. Um, I know people hate these, it depends type of questions, but it really does depend on this type of case, right? Bankable assets, everybody can take, there's no issues with that. Anything with a family business operating companies, we really have to look at it on a case-by-case basis.
0: Right, right, okay. Michael, um, from the, the, the sort of single family office perspective, um, what's the view that we can have a concentrated ownership in a, in a family business being the basis on which we establish a family office under these these rules in Singapore?
3: Um, I mean, certainly from, a, you know, the resident fund schemes you know, in terms of getting the tax exemption, it has to be what's you know, referred to as a designated investment um, and certainly shares in a company will constitute that. Um, but, you know, obviously the 39, r 13X regimes, um, you know, are fund exemption regimes. I mean, um, so, I mean, I, you know, I haven't you know, I tend to see just, you know, financial assets, portfolio assets in the structure. I mean, you know, Wong Lee, I'm not sure you know, whether you wanted to add anything there. And obviously just a broader tax point around sort of, you know, um, holding trading companies you know, within the structure you know, if assuming it, 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 you know, there's no, it's okay. I mean, in any event, you potentially have sort of significant tax costs with the transfer associated with that, you know, stamp duties, capital gains, taxes, et cetera. But, you know, can be designated investment, but, um, you know, refer to Longley on the broader practical experience.
0: Right. Okay. Longley. Yes. From your perspective. Looking at the, you know, business families, obviously are always considering ways in which they can structure for the next generation and uh, my experience is that they'll they're quite happy to look at different platforms and particularly where they feel that there's some level of advantage uh, to the family particularly cross-generationally um have you come across any in your in your practice that actually have looked sensibly at a ppli to to envelope a a family business um
4: um honest truth? No, not really. Um, um, it's not an instinctive structure from, as you say, you know, transgenerational to next gen. From a secession structure perspective, I tend to see it used more for sort of straightforward secession where you have a particular asset that you want to pass to maybe one or two um, um beneficiary upon passing. Uh, When you have an operating family business, generally the management and ownership succession aspects are more complicated. So um, your insurance contract in itself, I I think in theory, you can potentially draft it to cater to some of these uh, governance aspects and transitional aspects, but it's not uh, something that people naturally think about instinctively. I I think that's a starting point. Um, When you look at the family office structure, yeah, I think as it as this basic form, the succession aspects has not been you know truly explored to its fullest. But it, everyone knows that this is the building building block. This is yeah. the starting point, and then there's usually a placeholder. re really look at it to deal with the succession aspects in relation to the. Um, Do they fund vehicle from the ownership standpoint and then from the management uh, succession aspects then you'll be looking at the governance aspect to see who's going to manage, who's going to control. So if you place your operating um, business within the the, uh, fund entity, I think it is more natural to deal with some of these issues, not that you can't use the PPLI, but it's just not so... Um, commonly used, uh, at least I've not come across many. And um, Michael's point in relation to whether we, whether I see operating business being included in the sort of uh, fund incentive scheme, not as a standalone. Uh, from time to time, we see that, as as Michael said, you know, primarily financial assets. But clients do request that, oh, can can I also include this in because I've got significant holdings on this aspect. So it's sort of like a combination, an additional asset on top of financial assets.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly I've seen the. The emergence of the, the family office with family businesses, it tends to be that there'll be an enveloped family office, which means it will sit alongside as an affiliate. Yes. Not necessarily as a, the diagram at the moment that's shows right. the trading company and underneath. Yes. Actually, it will sit alongside the hold co.
4: That's right. Yes.
0: Be, yeah. And I think that's more typical of mm. the scenarios at the moment, is you'll have an envelope family office, presumably absorbing some of the dividend income. From the family business, and then ultimately looking at a we should
4: do the family a, office,
0: yeah, a liquidity yeah. event to then decant into a full-fledged family office. So that's the emergence. That's what I see.
4: Sometimes when I see under the fund is when the um, the um, family um, how do you say operating business is a listed company,
0: yeah, and yeah. then
4: they're you know they're not really managing very very much anymore, but there's a yeah. okay, good stakeholding with good dividend, and they sort of you know leave it there, as sort of part of the yeah. fund.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. OK, moving on to the next one. Control. This is always a (laughs) quite tricky one to deal with. (laughs) So policyholder control, shareholder control. OK, I think, um, Yannick, Roger, just to explain um, to to the audience how a policyholder effectively is able to exert some level of control over this investment company. And clearly, this is going to be around the the directors of that uh, investment company. And one aspect I'd ask you to, to to sort of mention is: do the life companies actually want to have their own directors sat there as well, or how do they effectively supervise or at least uh, assess the uh, the risk level on these companies going forward? So, from a control perspective on policyholders, how do they end up having the wiring effectively around the outside of these policies to end up being able to control the office of directors?
1: Right, can I take this one? Sure, sure, no problem. So, basically, okay. as you pointing okay. it out rightly, is there are basically two levels of control. You mentioned here the policyholder control. The policyholder control is actually that the policyholder has obviously all the rights in the policy. So, he can change whatever he wants in the policy beneficiaries, he can change the underlying investment, he can surrender the money, etc. cetera. So, so, the ultimate control is, anyhow, with the policy holder on on the other side if you use underlying companies like the investment company uh, typically the insurance companies themselves they don't want to be the director and so they basically would say that there needs to be uh, a a nominated director or sometimes maybe the client however obviously as i mentioned before in certain jurisdiction that is uh, not well to do because obviously Um, Nowadays, you need to think about place of effective management as well and so on. That creates obviously a whole other issue. Um, We have mentioned Taiwanese CFC rules that will be a topic there as well. Um, So this could obviously cause a, a problem to the structure. Nevertheless, in general, it's an open architecture. So the client could actually decide who should be the director of the underlying company and uh, uh, the insurance company would then basically purely act as a shareholder
0: in that um, decision around the director's appointment and removal that's embedded into the policy contract itself
1: it's not embedded in the policy contract itself it's typically through side letters
0: okay I think from the shareholder perspective it's just straight line uh, corporate governance, the same issues that we would have with any company structure. If you're the majority shareholder and obviously you get to decide the boards going all the way down and you can exert your control in that way so. it's a it's a straightforward approach from the from the sort of family office perspective um, with uh, in comparison to the ppli now one aspect one particular wrinkle that I wanted to to highlight was the case where if we have a policyholder passing away <clears throat> or losing capacity, but without it following into a insurable event. And I wanted to just chat through the cyber, uh, you know, what happens to a policy where it's a, a sort of hung policy, policyholders no longer there, but it's not gone through an insurable event because presumably one of the life assured is still available. And so we, we haven't got a decanting over to the beneficiaries How does that then play out from a policy perspective? What what generally will happen? And what are the options that the, because presumably the life companies have anticipated some of this, how how would we deal with this in practice?
1: Um, Absolutely, that's a very good question. And actually quite a big topic, which I I always see that a lot of people uh, in the past maybe have that, Done wrongly, and therefore, they, it basically causes a lot of issues. So, two aspects obviously. Uh, one aspect is um, if the policyholder, for example, is not the insured person, as you have also mentioned, um, if the policyholder would die, the policy would obviously continue to last. Now, um, in general, what you have to have is within the policy a regulation which says to whom it should go um the new rights of the policy holder or rights and obligations um if that has not been um clarified and um, then actually uh, the policy will be part of your state and the beneficiaries or your legal heirs will basically be the new policy holder which can make things very very complicated as you um obviously have um, uh, as you maybe have several legal heirs and if they need to take decisions to change something if you have eight legal heirs uh, you can imagine it becomes very difficult to change things um, on the incapacitated uh, part and um, there typically obviously you need to have um, a power of attorney, um uh, for a third person if there is nothing then obviously you need to go through the legal process to uh, appoint somebody who can now act on your behalf however um we as 1291 we work actually a lot uh, with something called an arbiter which is like a protector uh, in a trust sense let's say like that where um we have created this setup where um, the policyholder can appoint an arbiter, um, which has then certain rights to act if he's incapacitated or if the policyholder dies and the policyholder was not also the insured person, and therefore it continues to last the policy. Mm-hmm. And this actually solves a lot of those issues.
0: All right. How typical are these arbiter provisions in most of the PPLI? Um, policies is it something that's specialist or is it quite a, a sort of pervasive provision that's in the marketplace at the moment
1: um so this is a setup which is uh, not very common because only we use it i would say and um, therefore obviously it's not that common but uh, you usually also just use that if if the setup is you know if it's straightforward, the policyholder is the insured person, you don't need to worry about that typically. Mm-hmm. Where you use it is really if you have uh, complex family structures. Um, so I-, I give you an example we have a client, he has six girlfriends and 11 children with those six girlfriends. So, there, as you can imagine, uh, a lot of trustees uh, wouldn't take on the assets because they would freak out uh, about the the situation about the whole girlfriends and so on where with the arbiter actually you you are able to solve basically this issue and um, during his life but also after his death
0: right so i think the basic point is this if you've got um a policy holder passing away with a effectively, a hung policy because it's still it's still active then, if you've not taken the time to provide enough within the provisions of the policy this the, the the decision makers will be the estate. And then that may set you up for a fantastic contest if the beneficiaries and the estate beneficiaries are different people. Because presumably the every there'll be every incentive for the estate to surrender this policy as fast as they can be named as a new policy holder I mean, is not that, that's the accurate result isn't it on having one of these hung policies. Absolutely. So, all right. Wong Lee, have you have you seen this in practice, this sort of um, potential you know, loophole that we've got here?
4: Um, the situation that you've described where the life oh. assured and the policyholder <clears throat> are different people? Yes, it right. happens um, quite often, especially if the client is thinking that, well, I want to do transgenerational planning. You know, I'm very, very old. My children are quite old, too. And I want to provide for my grandchildren, for example. They may sort of put their children as the life assured, um, especially if you're talking one of those with death cover, so it's cheaper to buy on their slightly less old children's life. Yes. So I, I think from a scenario standpoint, this kind of situation does uh, come up. So as as you've rightly put, you know, and Yannick explained about the arbiter arrangement mm-hmm. and side letters, um, this is not... Uh, Um, typical arrangement insurance uh, setup. And if the client is not using 1291 as a broker, a typical broker may not, um, as a matter of policy, has any, you know, um, are not allowed to deal with site letters, for example, or they have no concept of dealing with site letters. So some of these issues are probably left um, out in the open and unsettled. And I, I have a question in my head, which I am not entirely sure, you know, what's the answer myself? Because um, as Yannick has mentioned, there are several powers that the policy holder has. He has the power to change beneficiaries, change assets, change whatever. Those are his powers versus his ownership rights in relation to the policy, right? So even though the policy is still an ongoing policy, he has died, this asset in theory should go to his estate. I can understand how the powers can be passed on to, to somebody who appoints, I'm not exactly sure how the ownership aspect can be dealt with this way. I don't have the answer. I'm just sort of raising it because, you know, it's just not uh, something that's commonly explored when it comes to a policy situation.
1: You know, maybe if I quickly can uh, come to this point, obviously the policy itself is theoretically out of the ordinary state. That's why Mm. you can name beneficiaries, and that's why you can transfer the ownership. The issue is just very often it gets forgotten that, if you have different policyholder holding your person a lot of people think oh i need to name the beneficiary when the insured person passes away but here you have a second insta- instance or uh, that can happen that the policyholder dies before the insured person usually within the insurance document you can regulate it and you can say okay i nominate this person if the policy holder passes away before the insured person but if you forget that and it goes to the legal heirs.
0: Yeah. Yeah and then so this comes back so only how you know with junior wealth planners or inexperienced wealth planners are they actually going to pick up this point?
4: My gut is that they're most likely to miss it. Yeah. And if you look yeah. at the the sort of the Asian landscape when it comes to wealth planners they're more familiar with trust structures than they are with policies. And if they're familiar with policies, they're more familiar with the jumbo policies. So when it comes to these sort of more bespoke policies, they're meant more for wealth planning. Uh, I think they, they need to pay attention. And if they need to, you know, speak to the twelve ninety ones of the world to understand yeah. how can you sort of bespoke the policy a little, speak yes. to the Michaels of the world get a counsel to come into the picture to look at the documentation to yeah. ensure that, um, you know, it is fit for purpose. I think it's important because it's some of these issues um, is not um, typical. The scenario is typical, but you know, if you don't, you're not used to seeing how this works. It yeah. takes people some time to even think through. Okay, what is the trigger event when it comes to policy?
0: Yeah. Is yeah. it the
4: policy holder dying, or is it the yeah, life yeah. should die? It yeah. may be something that we we find instinctive, but for a junior planner, maybe not.
0: Right, right. Yep. I think looking at the shareholder, it gets a bit more easier. I would say, um, obviously, you're going to have the shareholder go off. And if the person passes away, you're going to have a probate. Um, uh, or if it's a, it's a subject to local sort of civil law jurisdiction or, or Sharia, you'll have an immediate vesting in the estates. Uh, incapacity again you'll have the same issue of trying to do a potentially a cross border um, sort of guardianship claim and whether or not that's public forum as well will be a, an additional. The one I wanted to highlight on this particular scenario is if you've ended up with a single shareholder single director structure. And the issue that you can have if that that same person passes away or goes incapable uh, and the entire system then shuts down because you've got no lights on anywhere within within this. I was just going to ask, Wangi, from your perspective, how many times are we seeing clients um, sort of rushing through this, ending up with single person entities with this, this dual risk of having no director and no shareholder at the same time?
4: Very common. So they, they're usually in a rush to, to um, meet all the 13X, 13R requirements. And um, I think it's also sensible that they don't rush themselves into a gigantic PTC and whatever structure that they do not understand. So. The first step is just get a very lean structure in place to get the ball rolling. But I think it's important as the advisor to, to put a note to say, okay, once we've sorted all these applications and everything else, the next stage is to look at this um, structure and see what are the next steps to professionalize it over time. Yeah. Um, So this is an important note that this is not, you know, it's still work in progress. (laughs) This is really the first step. And there are many more steps that they need to go with their advisors and their respective um, stakeholders to to professionalize the situation with the help of advisors.
3: Right, right. Just just, just a question for Wong Lee. I mean, Mm. given the, you know, the, the, the statements by the Minister of Finance and the press reports around potential wealth tax, which Could take the form of an inheritance tax. Are you starting to see people wanting to accelerate that next step?
4: Yes, the queries are coming in more, and um, the last two structures we were given very short timeline. They really want to sort of come in as soon as possible. So in the end, you're going to end up getting this piece out of the way first. Then you look at the succession piece. Then you look at the professionalisation piece and including the risk management aspect. So um, I, I think the takeaway for advisors is you get this stage out of the way, but that's not the end of the story. There's a lot more you need to do with the uh, ring of advisors that you put in place for the clients to, to get the um, whole family office set up um, from strength to strength, so to speak. Yeah,
0: yeah.
4: Okay. A lot more work for Michael to do going forward. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So from the, the privacy bit, I can I'll probably deal with this fairly quickly. The, the main privacy aspects will come up if you've got... Uh, a sort of interspread of uh, corporate entities using either British overseas territories, Crown dependencies, or um, the UAE. Um, CRS is pervasive, so we'll have that going through. Um, the key point to, to note though, from the privacy standpoint is going forward in time, if you do have, let's say BVI companies within the structure, I think 13X from a family office perspective, uh, you will have, if, if everything goes as it should, You will have the advent of publicly accessible beneficial ownership registers in the BVI and the other uh, British overseas territories which would mean that from a family office perspective there is a privacy discussion that needs to be had with the client around using a jurisdiction that will go public not every jurisdiction will go public Um, certainly from the FATF perspective they're not requiring mandatory public registers as a global standard they're not doing that yet So, but if you are using the traditional Caribbean jurisdictions, you'll need to be aware if you're if you're planning these structures that there will be public access to the the register now you may well have. a Singapore company on top of this, or you might have a Singapore trust, these will all be um, uh, sort of subject to disclosure on a public register in the BVI going forward that's the public beneficial ownership economic substance can have an impact on this um, if in effect you're not arguing that the. The, the BVI company is tax resident in Singapore. Let's say you're actually arguing that it's tax resident in the BVI, then the economic substance would be a consideration. Whether or not it's sufficient simply to keep the company in good standing. The, uh, this is the fund company, or is going to be another another issue. Or whether or not you have to have staff and and uh, sort of premises. Again, another discussion. If you breach economic substance rules, is a, a spontaneous disclosure of the beneficial ownership anyway. Query all of this in the context of uh, mainland um, clients, then whether or not the information flow into mainland China is going to be welcome going forward, um, particularly with common prosperity, and we don't really know how all that's going to be developing. From a CRS perspective, um, if you do the analysis, you'll find that uh, the PPLI at least doesn't light up the beneficiaries, life assured. It will just be the policy holder that it's habitually looking at. Whereas when you look at the family office perspective on CRS, then it'll be all the shareholders going forward um, as the controlling persons. So on balance, what you end up with on a privacy perspective is the PPI will come out slightly ahead and the the family office in its current state, probably particularly if it's interspread with use of overseas territories, will probably have more of a privacy uh, issue going forward than um, than the policy. One query though is, if you've got a BDI, let's say within um, the PPLI, is a query whether or not the if the policyholder reserves enough powers, whether or not that would be viewed as a beneficial owner going forward, and that that's an open thing to how the rules will generate over time. Economic substance is not an issue because if you do breach, it will just be the owners of the life company that will be um, effectively disclosed. Okay, so. Migration, I think this is a pretty easy smackdown in terms of the comparison. Um, from a policyholder, a shareholder perspective, obviously the, um, the, the, the single family office will confer uh, sort of immigration rights into Singapore. From a PPLI policy perspective, you will not get that, um, that automatic right, as it were. So I think we're all agreed that that's the basic analysis on this one that the migration aspect comes out ahead on the family office if you're looking at it from a Singapore perspective. And then the asset protection aspects. And here we'll look at two aspects, uh, bankruptcy and divorce. Now, this is looking at it from the perspective of the policyholder is either bankrupt or going through a divorce. And what is the risk to the underlying policy in any of those events occurring? Um, I'll, I'll preface it um, on two bases: is that the policyholder is within the jurisdiction of bankruptcy or divorce. And then the policy holder is not within the jurisdiction because obviously, if you're within the jurisdiction, the court can can make you do things uh, upon pain of going to prison, right? So here we have a policy holder that's going bankrupt and uh, or being divorced. So Yannick, any any thoughts on on this?
1: Sure. Obviously, you always need to look uh, into the jurisdiction where you set up the policy. Different jurisdictions they have different regulations um to give you a little bit of an idea for example um the european countries who offer ppli or the most known ones uh, let's say Liechtenstein, uh, luxembourg uh, ireland um they typically have asset protection rules where the asset protection rules are set up like if you basically set up the policy to protect your legal heirs or your family means your wife your uh, your children and your grandchildren then it becomes a non-seizable asset um and this obviously can give you a lot of protection let's say in the bankruptcy uh, the divorce case is something different which I assume we will discuss later yeah. um other jurisdiction have regulated it different so uh, Singapore for example if you set up a policy with a Singapore carrier um it expressively expressively needs that you make an irrevocable uh, beneficiary clause, basically. So you nominate your beneficiaries, uh, name them, and it needs to be irrevocable. And uh, a lot of people don't like to do that, obviously, because um, that actually makes it much more difficult to move the policy around. Because uh, typically, if it's an irrevocable beneficiary clause in a policy, then whenever you want to do changes, the beneficiaries need to agree to all the changes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And on the bankruptcy, if presumably the policyholder can continue to enjoy the right to surrender?
1: Absolutely, but uh, you need to see uh, what the circumstances are. Obviously, first of all, there are uh, uh, fraudulent conveyance periods in all the jurisdictions as well. Uh, Europe typically has 12 months, there are couple um uh, jurisdiction in the Caribbeans they even have shorter free months and uh, then uh, obviously he still keeps the right to surrender but obviously goes back in into his own estate then yeah. it can consequently mean that he needs then to pay it to the creditors
0: so the key bit there is that he shouldn't be in the forum of bankruptcy so he shouldn't be in the jurisdiction in which he's in which he's effectively being bankrupt because then he can be ordered to surrender.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: Right. That's that's one of the key bits. Okay. And on the divorce side, um, do we have situations where any of the jurisdictions have rules that will not respect a sort of family court matrimonial order to split the policy or to uh, to to surrender it out? Or do we have any any of those provisions? Any in any of the jurisdictions that offer? PPLIs, that they will not recognize a matrimonial order from a from a court?
1: As far as I know, there is no jurisdiction which has such a provision. However, uh, we have actually seen cases um, where this has happened. But they then based it on the asset protection rules, where they basically, uh, we had one case, for example, with the US. There was a divorce in the US. And in the US, you typically have policy splitting so you make two policies out of one and mm. um, however the policy was in europe set up and the beneficiaries were the children so uh, the court actually treated this as the policy was set up to protect only the children and since they were already divorced in the us she was seen as an external creditor and therefore didn't get access to it also because this jurisdiction didn't know policy splitting but mm. It's uh, I, I wouldn't bet on it, so I wouldn't uh, use it as a sales argument that it protects anybody in case of a divorce.
0: Right, right. OK, but at least we have in the jurisdictions the uh, the asset protection from the creditors standpoint, provided you're not in the forum, right? I think that's the, that's the key message. From the shareholder perspective, he's just wide open to all of this. There's nothing in the in the bland creation of a family office with an individual shareholder, there's nothing, none of this will be there It'll just be subject to applicable law and whether or not it's there. Any comments at all from from anyone else on this or shall I move on? No. OK. Right. Reversibility. And this is a simple one, but I, I include it because it's, you know, people do do end up changing their minds from a PPLI perspective. Can we get out of this thing quite easily or do we have massive penalties and and trailing fees and you know god knows what else happening or is it is it just easy to reverse out um, whenever the the policyholder wishes
2: yeah in most jurisdictions it's it's very easy to reverse these different policies so um you know uh, i think a policy holder can simply write a letter um we can decant the policies usually within a month um we take, take the different assets out of the different policies it's very very flexible in, in that regard and i think that's one of the reasons why a lot of uh, a lot of families especially asian families like to use these types of structures because that flexibility that sort of built into these PPI policies.
0: From the family office perspective, presumably the reversibility is not going for the exemption, not maintaining the the yearly spend or anything else. Michael, from your, from that perspective, anything to say on, you know, the, the ramifications of not being within envelope within the incentive schemes?
3: Well, you would just kind of cease to qualify for the exemption and then you're looking at the investments assuming it's a Singapore fund vehicle and identifying whether that you know incomes revenue versus capital whether it's received in Singapore etc um but you know obviously if you're looking to unwind the structure you know transferring out assets liquidating companies you know not not you know takes time particularly the liquidation process
0: yeah yeah Lee, anything on you from from the reversibility does it come up as a as a planning consideration at all? Is, is this discussed in practice?
4: Um, not really. I mean, yeah. PPLI is fairly simple to, to reverse and family office, I, I think more often than not, we will raise it as an issue that, do you really want to do this? because the setup cost, as we discussed earlier, is mm. not low. It is something that you want to really think through and make sure you do it for the long term. Mm. So if you've done that piece right, the chances of them coming to the point of wanting to reverse, it will be in um, really extraordinary situations. And mm. naturally, compared to the PPLI, will be, there are more steps to do than just to surrender the policy, naturally. But mm. it's, not, you know, it's not really difficult. It's just troublesome.
0: Mm. Okay, last bit on the analysis, the back-to-back analysis was succession. So looking at it from a PPLI perspective and here we have the life-assured passing and then what would otherwise be a transfer across to the nominated beneficiaries. There's two aspects I I, I want to to discuss in this which is the community property aspects and the forced airship. Now just to be clear for for members that are watching uh, community property is the, the sort of regime that a married couple will have And in this instance, we're looking at the policyholder having transferred a company into the the policy. And if he was subject to community, half of that company ownership was his wife's if he's in this scenario. So the question then comes up is putting a community property into a policy, does that cure the community? In other words, does it effectively extinguish what would otherwise be the wife's half share? The forced airship bit is all about this. This policy holder will be, uh, the policyholder had um, w- will assume is no longer around. Um, had originally constituted the policy with these assets, the beneficiaries are different from the forced air beneficiaries that the policyholder would otherwise be liable to um, to benefit. So the policyholder could be, let's say, Indonesian or he could be a uh, Filipino. Um, some of the regimes that have forced airship rules. Question is, is it possible for a dis- you know, sort of dis- uh, gruntled forced air to effectively take action against some of these PPLI policy beneficiaries to say, look, that's part of my inheritance that you're getting from this policy. Because what the, uh, you know, what the policyholder did was contrary to effectively what he should have done under our domestic, let's say, Sharia law, or under our domestic civil law regime. So there's two aspects here. And uh, I'd invite Yannick to, to to have a chat through, first of all, is any of this stuff ever talked about? right and if it is what what's the sort of answers here from the perspective of here's a company married couple they're from a matrimonial regime let's say china or somewhere and they're transferring into a ppi policy and and no one seems to care that the the wife may have a half share in this in this transfer is it typical that this comes up and and what's the result
1: um to be honest i would say it's not so typical that it comes up i also have not really seen any of the insurance carriers really Taking any notice in that, or basically say, oh, if um, how is it? Is that only your wealth? Is it? Are you married? Basically, um, is it share property? Um, or there is one insurance carrier which actually uh, we have just done where um, they have the first time ask actually about the 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 status of the marriage. Is it kind of separated? um estates or uh, community property etc right but th- that's the first which ever came up mm. um so uh but i've also never seen any uh wife kind of trying to force her way in i would say into the policy so right. far and right. um, maybe there are certain other insurance carriers or broker i've seen that i have not yet seen that
0: mm. i mean from the force there part of the trust side is even Singapore has anti-force air provisions on its trust law. Um, and that's deliberately designed so that you can create trusts here that can defeat Sharia or can defeat civil law claims that would otherwise be applicable. But do, do we see the same um, with respect to the policies? Uh,
1: absolutely. Obviously you you have regulations which uh, say that uh, the policies are out of the ordinary state. You can freely name the beneficiaries, et cetera. That is obviously then just in the jurisdiction, so you can set up the policy, you can choose whoever you want, um, whether then uh, the, the, the legal heirs have a claim against the beneficiaries in their home countries, obviously a different story. They typically then probably can still go after the beneficiaries if it uh, yeah. violated the forced airship rules
0: but they do have the firewall protections, the anti-forced airship protections in the legislation around the policy. Is that is that correct?
1: Absolutely. So uh, you as a legal heir, you cannot do, make any claim for the policy um, okay. if the beneficiary clause in the policy uh, is violating the forced airship rules. The insurance right. carrier will not be interested in that. They will just distribute to the nominated beneficiaries. Right.
0: So the one that's open is the community property on the married couple, and how that will work out, particularly if the policy um, pays out to um, effectively just the, the children. So sure. there's a potential there, particularly if they were they were married at the time when the uh, the property was put in, and then later divorced, etc. Okay, okay. I think from the and I'll, I'll come around to the to the panel after that on this bit from the perspective of the 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 shareholder wide open if there's community property and it's a common law jurisdiction they'll respect that if it's uh, from a a forced air perspective if you've got a non-domiciliary from a Singapore perspective anyway let's say Indonesian or Philippines or China then yes China won't have the forced air to the the same extent but they will respect that applicable law uh, going forward and that's key thing is that the fact that you have a Singapore single-family office doesn't mean that you're not importing in other applicable laws. Wang Li, from your perspective, just looking at this secession aspect, do we feel that there is enough mention and discussion around the community property aspects when it comes to policies and, and also the, the the forced airship? Is that is because I know in the trusts we'll do that, right? Mm. The industry will do that. They'll have enough training to have done that. But when they're dealing with policies, do you think this is another one where it's completely lost this discussion?
4: I, I agree. Um, as Yannick said, this um, issue doesn't come up that um, that frequently. In fact, it hardly ever comes up. Um, so when it comes to using it as a succession tool versus using a trust, some of the things that we normally think through, um, it doesn't really happen when it comes to an insurance solution. You tend to treat it as you know, buying an insurance contract and entering the contract. Some of the issues in relation to how you fund it, you may think about the taxable event on funding, um, but you don't think about the spousal consent issues and, you know, things that you've raised so it is a good takeaway for the um, the other wealth planners here that when they use a, a tool like this that um, we're less familiar with compared to a trust structure some mm. of the issues that we typically will consider when we are funding a trust they have to um, do the same and involve advisors um, to support them on this one
0: mm. Roger Michael any any final comments on this one no oh, okay this was what we came up with uh, I say we not me but I think these guys will support me, OK? <laughs> this is a crude <laughs> diagram, which actually sets out, I think, what we the narrative of what we've said, which is on the cost side, PPLI will look as though it comes out ahead, although with the caveat that the, the, the more you put into this thing, the more expensive it gets, so it'll at some point flip over to a family office. Consolidation, assets, et cetera, looks as though there was neutral on that control. PPLI was a bit complex about how it went about doing this. And there was a, there was a number of issues around, um, you know, potentials for it to be a sort of hung policy. So the family office tend to be more straight line privacy, PPLI ahead, principally because the family office was just wide open for all of these reporting, particularly if you're using a, a BVI on your 13X. Migration, well, PPLI has nothing to offer, family office does. Asset protection, PPLI had a lot more protections built in, the family office had none, reversibility, neutral, and then finally succession, I think PPLI came out ahead because it had at least the concept of a beneficiary transfer built in, whereas uh, the the family office, you take your chances with an intestacy or God knows what else would happen in the uh, applicable jurisdictions. At least with the PPLI, you had some level of control. Now, given that that PPLI comes out ahead, there is the, the, the caveat that it's horses for courses. So it depends on the type of client and what they're actually trying to achieve. Okay. Any comments from the panel at all on this?
4: Um, I think for me, the succession piece, we need to remember that the family office, as we've discussed earlier, is at its rudimentary stage. Yeah. It's half Which a structure. You have not, yes, yeah. yeah. actually yeah. thought through the secession aspect. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. In fact, if you wanted to claw back on this, you would have to use a trust. So you can start to normalise the family office if you start to use a trust, and all the, the deficiencies will start to be manageable. Um, not all of them, but at least they will start to claw back. All right, all right. Moving on to the combination structures. The last part. This shouldn't take too long. First one is family office uh, holding a PPLI policy, and then the second version of PPI policy holding a family office. This is what it looks like in combination. Here's the family office above, and as part of the fund company investments is a PPI policy, let's assume that that policy was effectively assigned in to the fund company. So questions being asked on this one, Sorry, I'll just bring it up. So there's the questions. It's the same list of queries just at this stage, just which are the ones that we should be particularly concerned about. Um, Looking at, let's say, for instance, the tax um, side, the tax incentive presumably is not going to be affected by this. But um, from the, the policy perspective, do we have, let's say, a break in the uh, the CFC analysis? How does it work, Michael?
3: Um, but to the extent that you've got non-resident um, owners, shareholder, and taking Indonesian as, Indonesia as an example, um, you know, the policy would be an asset of the fund company. Um, and the CFC rules kind of look to attribute the income of that entity you know based on the reported accounting profits so to the extent that you know subject to what you know subject to the accounting yes it would still kind of you know that the policy would be reflected it wouldn't sort of you know doesn't break cfc attribution
0: do you feel that's both for omnibus indonesia as well as the the emerging rules in china
3: uh well i mean omnibus indonesia then you know then you sort of got broader questions around you know what your distribution strategy will be you know dividendary exemption but i mean just in terms of you know the value of the policy you know depending on how it's accounted it would be reflected in the prima facie cfc attribution
0: right right yeah how typical is this type of scenario uh, in in practice Lee, well, have you seen this type of um, structure being used habitually
4: no i mean i'm struggling to figure out what's the purpose of the um ppli below Unless there's some, you know, some tax angle we're looking at in relation to the underlining assets, but if you're looking at from a Singapore perspective, you're your fund um, incentive schemes, we have covered the Singapore bit. So is there some offshore aspects we are looking at in relation to the underlying assets? Is there a uh, holding yeah. tax angle or or something? So I'm I was, sort of trying uh, to figure out what are we trying to do here? Or, or is it just a wealth planner trying to yeah. sell two products?
0: <laughs> it could be, it could be that actually, what they're trying to do is get the immigration status, but trying to be clever around the CFC by having the policy... Well, they obviously haven't spoken to
4: Michael and got his advice yeah. because it doesn't help from the CFC standpoint, so...
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
3: because your ownership is still... The exactly. Market. So you've still so got, you've got a CFC, grant. Right?
0: So we're saying that the cash value fluctuations will give rise to what a nominal gain. So
3: subject to the accounting, right, and, and bearing in mind, you're taking Indonesia as the base case, I mean, the attribution depends on the accounting profit per the local accounting standards. So if it's a Singapore company, you know, how would Singapore you how would Singapore gap, you know, accounting standards, you know, look to reflect that. Um, But it, you know, if if that is reflected in the profit, you know, that's the amount that would be, you know, subject to, you know, prima facie attribution, you know, subject, Zach, as you said to, okay, what's our distribution strategy? You know, do we look to take advantage of dividend,
0: you know, um, reinvestment exemptions, et cetera?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. Anything else? Yannick, anything, Roger, anything on this one?
1: Uh, Maybe quickly from a practical standpoint of you, I have maybe seen that once in my past 18 years in the PPLI world um, or uh, maybe two, three times. And uh, uh, there is basically just one base case, I would say, uh, where it's about uh, saving withholding tax. Lee has mentioned it before. It it was a good kind of... So I made
4: a good guess.
1: (laughs) Because obviously there um depending on the fund can he reclaim uh, uh, or not and then with whom do they have double tax treaties uh, so if it's singapore singapore doesn't have double tax treaties with the u.s so potentially if you have a lot of u.s uh, investments underneath and you need to sell withholding tax then there that could be applicability
0: you agree with that michael yeah i can see that yeah okay very good all right next one last one in all of this um now then this is a ppli policy that holds a family office underneath this must be a quite a rare bird in in practice but anyway this is the scenario that we'll we'll analyze suppose the question that um, would be asked is are you still going to get your your investment migration aspect to this are you still going to be entitled is this in other words is this a single family or is it a life company based in luxembourg that's the question on this family office from a Singapore perspective. What will MAS make of this? Any comments? I think we're all looking at Wong
4: Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've not seen this before. I'm not sure what MAS would think, but in theory, if you look at it, um, it's not very different from your whole call being held by the trustee. You know, so to some extent, so you, you obviously do have to establish and prove to them that you have a common policy holder and yeah. blah, 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 blah. Uh, we need yeah. to test it to see how they react, but um, yeah. I think it can potentially fly.
0: Yeah. Roger, anything yeah. from you? Yeah, I think this is- some, the- some, of, some of the preliminary
2: discussions we had with some advisors that, that you know, MAS would sort of see through that and see the ultimate policy holder. That would be the um, granting of the, of the uh, employment passes. Um, right and it has not been tested yet right
0: yeah but if it if it were to happen isn't this the the ultimate structure then from a from a cfc perspective isn't aren't we having literally the cake and eat it and i hate using that term because i generally hate the people that use that term <laughs> but isn't this it isn't this the right structure then to try and have a go on if you yeah, want exactly. to have a deferral is, as
2: well this is this you'd you better get the best of both worlds right yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. There's, there's, yeah. A, there's, there's
2: a
3: question around. Um, I mean, you know, typically the single family office, you know, the management company, you know, relies on being exempt from licensing. Yeah. And, yeah, I guess, you know, defer to you, and Longley, but, you know, kind of question, you know, how that exemption, you know, the availability of that exemption in that case. But, but yeah, otherwise you've got, you know, the policy, again, take Indonesia, say, as a base case, you know, if the policy is not a CFC, you know, you've otherwise got deferral, you know, within the policy, yeah, I mean, kind of
2: give it a tick. Right. So At this was, day and age, I think that, you know it's it's no it's either, either, either or anymore, right? It's always a combination of structures, right? Yeah, yeah. A combination of the PPLI and the uh, from the office or PPLI and a trust or a VCC. It's a combination of these different structures now because it's such a complex world. Right? Yeah, yeah. Only that does its own
0: thing. Okay, so the key one on this is if you are able to get the investment migration aspect and the work permits and all the rest then you would get, um, you would have uh, a, a quite a, a powerful combination there, because it gets the tax side, it gets the, I suppose, the cost is under control, and then you also have all of the add-ons that the family office would bring. So okay, Yeah,
3: I guess just, you know, subject to the point that, you know, if if there is that migration aspect, you know, the, and policyholders resident in Singapore, you know, versus, say, Indonesia, you know, but yeah, if, yes. if, if, if you, you know, still wanted to have or did have uh, an owner in Indonesia, an Indonesian tax resident. Yes, but I mean, if everybody's migrated to Singapore, then
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good. Right, that was the the, the sort of end of the uh, the main discussion. Um, we've got a number of questions now. Um, let's see. I'm going to look at the so the questions are both on the the, the Q A as well as on the chat. So let's do the the, the Q A first. Um, what jurisdiction is typically utilized for the investment company on a PPLI setup? And does it matter? So looking at the, um, you know, your Invesco at the bottom, where would that typically be? Are we talking about BVI or are we talking about midshore Singapore or what do we typically see on this one?
2: I mean, I I think it it can be quite flexible, right? So you can see everything from, as you said, uh, BVIs is Caymans, which are now, you know, I think an increased scrutiny, but also Singapore, Hong Kong, Cyprus, it could be any number of different types of companies and structures, right, whatever you feel most comfortable with. Um, but we do see a, I think a trend of away from the classic sort of offshore structures, your offshore structures, you see people moving away from that. Sure.
0: Yeah one question on whether or not the PPLI family office are in a trust, would that facilitate succession asset protection? I think um, that's a that's a key one, and I think what you know sort of only what, what we've been mentioning sort of throughout is that the family office, without looking at a trust, is half a structure, and that in in many respects the PPLI, without looking at a trust, holding that um, maybe not as half a structure, maybe I don't know a quarter, right? But certainly the, the family office without a trust would be quite bare. And it, and it does expose a fairly a fair amount of weaknesses. The so succession asset protection is, yes. is some of the, the key ones, right? Yes. Okay. One for Michael, uh, rather convoluted. For the cash value of an insurance policy to be included in the computation of assets of a fund co that is managed by a single family office, is there a requirement that the policy must be issued by a Singapore carrier? Not that I'm aware of. No. Yeah. Okay. All right, that's that. And then the, the chat side. Um, what jurisdictions typically utilize for the investment? Oh, sorry, that's me repeating myself. Um, OK, here we go. Some from our experience is a rather chatty one at uh, Crown Global Insurance Group plug PPLI does not compete with and is not an alternative to a family office or trust. OK, I think mean, we could probably stop there. Do we have do we get a copy of the presentation? Yeah, copy of the presentation and the, the recording and the slides um so another one on uh, such policy should be held by trust agreed we we think that the structures are half without that singapore irrevocable nomination can be revoked if policyholder appoints a co-trustee i i don't there's anyone if you picked up on that roger a singapore irrevocable nomination can be revoked if the policyholder appoints a co-trustee is that a thing or is that
2: i'll have to look into it
0: yeah okay yeah, and I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's pretty much it on the um, on the on the questions. So usual admonition that uh, everything we say you can't rely on, and it's probably full of errors. Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this uh, webinar, and I'd like to to thank Wong Lee, Hani, Roger Chi, and Michael Velton for um, helping very much to, to to go through this. And I think that's that's our um, our VRT for today. Thanks very much for everyone that's tuned in to watch this and um, there'll be more VSEs this year, not quite sure how many, but there'll be of this technical nature where we compare different types of solutions. Okay, thanks very much, everyone for joining us. Bye.
4: Bye. Bye.